Breitbart News Daily, a little best of of the full show that we do on Sirius XM Patreon every weekday morning for three hours. We had a ton of great guests today. I, I go over them all in the intro of the show here, but uh, Mark Morano from Climate Depot, Ken Kukowski talking all about the climate, about the uh, Clarence Thomas uh, fake debate. Let me give you the quick on that one. Uh, they're claiming that Clarence Thomas accepted a Super Bowl ring from Jerry Jones, and this is some major ethical violation because it's worth $80,000. It turns out it was a replica ring worth about 25 bucks. So, and they used it as like a paperweight in the office. So, real, real, real horrible ethics violation there. Uh, our Breitbart News Pentagon correspondent, Christina Wong, was in Maui during the fires. And Brandon Weikert, who's an expert on all things space and uh, Chinese, China attacking us. So we, th- those are our guests there. Fantastic. Uh, but we're going to play the clip in a minute of Joel Pollack, the interview that we did with him uh, about all Trump's legal stuff. Just get a uh, legal mind, a legal analysis on all that to help us make sense of it all. So that's all coming up next. But kicked off the show talking about some cultural issues and uh, rich man, rich men north of Richmond and what that means for us and where we are and some bad examples of our culture. But then we ended on a high note, ended on a positive example of something good in our culture that we need much more of. Here it is. Let's talk for a minute here about this Richmond, Rich Men, North of Richmond song. We played it uh, when it first started going viral on Thursday or Friday. So the quick backstory, there's this guy just from the middle of nowhere, Virginia, him and his three dogs. We don't know much about him. Don't worry, though. I'm sure the left will sick everyone they can find to dig up whatever they can find in order to destroy his life. I'm certain that that will happen. So we'll know everything about him soon. I hope he doesn't care. Truly, like, I hope that's a reaction. Uh, whatever bad stuff they find about him, I hope they say, yeah, that's who I used to be. So he came up with this, this, uh, this what has become a culture war song, and it speaks to half the country, the forgotten half of the country. It's the same spirit that supports Trump, the desire to stick it to the rich men north of Richmond. So now we're just a couple days. So the backstory we know is his friend asked him to record one of his songs for his YouTube page. Like this guy didn't have a YouTube page. He didn't have anything. So he recorded it for his buddy's YouTube page and someone found it and it went viral. Now that song is the number one song on iTunes, but it turns out he's not a one hit wonder. He had, he, when I checked last night, he had the number one, two, three song on iTunes. One, two, and three. Then Jason Aldean, then Taylor Swift. And then he had the number 6, 10, 11, 15, 20. <laughs> He's like, like, what? He had all of his songs were in the top 20 songs in the country from nowhere, like in three days. He doesn't even have an album. There's, I don't even know where these songs are coming from. He doesn't have like a studio, a radio deal or anything. Like what you, or a, a studio or what do they call it? Record deal. He's got nothing. So he made a video thanking everyone. He's very humble, authentic. That's what people want more than anything. They want authenticity. That's why the song resonates so well. He's so grateful for everything. And he's like, yeah, hey, I'm performing uh, my first concert after all this at a, a farm market. <laughs> That's great. 
somewhere in North Carolina. Not a farmer's market, a farm market. It's like a country grocery store. And I love it. I want them only to perform at farm markets. I want farm markets and farmer's markets. Maybe county fairs, but never at the grandstand. I just want them at the risers along the way. That's it. That, that needs to be where he tours always. And then there's video of people. I, I'm terrible at counting people. I can never. I'm horrible at crowd estimates. I have no clue. But I don't know. Maybe the 1,000 people went. Maybe 1,000 people and everyone's singing along. It's great. It's awesome. So here he is when he went on stage. His, oh, by the way, his name's uh, Oliver Anthony. And he started off saying, I don't like what last time I was here, there were 20 people. I just had something I, I felt compelled to share with you. This is in uh, Psalm. Psalm 37, 12 through 20. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright, but their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Better the little that have righteousness than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will have plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. And they will go up and smoke. And you wonder why his songs have struck a chord with so many in the country. P.S. There are preachers who would be afraid to quote that psalm in a sermon. There are preachers in this country who would be afraid to quote that psalm from the pulpit. I saw an interview the other day with two people I admire, two people I politically admire, David uh, Douglas Murray and Jordan Peterson. And they were talking about life, some of the deep, meaningful, difficult things about life. And they both started going off in a good way. They both started uh, speaking off the cuff, eloquently and, and casually about Job and Elijah and Moses. And just, just with this casualness that most Christians, A, couldn't even pull off and B, would be scared to. And we wonder why our country's in the situation it is. When we have a culture where the only time we hear biblical stories is from a gay guy and an agnostic. And there they are speaking these biblical truths that Christians won't even, won't even do. And you're like, oh, well, that's why things are messed up. I'll give you an example. The, uh, uh, these are all on Breitbart.com. These are all from this weekend. Austin, Texas, they had their pride parade on Saturday. The start of the parade, the kickoff group in the parade was the Austin, Texas school district. So not only are we now having children in pride parades, they're starting the parade. They're, they're the, the first group are the kids. The organizers of the parade are like, who should we start? Well, let's have, let's have the children start. So the children are all in the parade, and then in the back of that group of the children are the Furby. Are they the Furby? Is that right, where they dress up like animals? They're like, oh, this, this is different. This feels like two countries. Let me give you another one. Did you see the video of the Nordstrom? 
There's a Nordstrom in a nice part of Los Angeles, Topanga. It's actually where the founder of Black Lives Matter decided to buy one of her houses. There are no black people there, but Patrice Colors had decided to buy a house in Topanga, of all places. So around 50 people ran into the Nordstrom, grabbed everything they could, and ran out. You've seen, if you haven't seen this video, you've seen videos like it. Now, according to California, no laws were broken, <laughs> or very, very minor ones. It's, it's technically not looting, because there was no state of, emergency, state of emergency at the time, so it's not looting. It's not a robbery, because there was no use of force or threats against the staff. Maybe some of the items were over $950, but even if there was, that's just a slap on the wrist. It's not, that's a, they call it a non-serious, non-violent offense. So even if these people get caught, which they won't, nothing would happen. There's no threat of anything against anyone from doing this. Nothing at all. And civilization crumbles around us. Now you could say, oh, Slater, what's the big deal? It's a Nordstrom. It's for rich people and, and they're the ones affected, not the marginalized, whatever. Okay, Washington Post wrote an article about a grocery store in one section of D.C. in one of their wards. And in this ward, there's literally only one grocery store. And it may close. Why might it close? Because there's so much shoplifting at the store, they can't stay in business. The store, has they said they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on security upgrades. And it didn't stop anything. And they're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars per month of theft. And the whole article is about how everyone in the town is worried that it may close down. Someone says, if we don't have this grocery store, there will be nowhere else. 58-year-old resident who's been shopping at this store ever since it opened in 2007. It's like, oh, great, Tracy. What are you doing about it? You're so worried. What are you doing about it? A, who are you voting for? And B, what are you doing in the neighborhood to shame these shoplifters and shame their families? The grocery store, they've tried everything they can. They've limited the entrances to the store, but the fire department came in and said, you can't, you can't do that. They lock as much as they can up. They don't have any expensive items there at all anymore. They limit the self-checkout to 20 items or less, but like, who cares if you're shoplifting? Like, oh, well, I can't... Like if, if, you're, if you don't care about stealing, you don't care about violating the 20, sign, 20 items or less sign. They, ha, they created some uh, dispensers where it makes noise when you take an item off. I don't even know what that is. So you take an item off the shelf and the shelf makes noises or something. Like all these things supposed to deter shoplifters. And they'll, they'll do everything they can short of arresting people who shoplift. And people in California and all these blue states and blue cities will do anything they will, anything they could possibly think of short of changing the law to you can't steal anything that's valued over one penny. That should be the law. In California, they changed it to $950. You can steal anything less than $950 and it's nothing. It's no problem at all. They should change the law to you can't steal anything that costs over one penny. Tootsie Rolls. You can steal, a, you can steal one Tootsie Roll. That's one penny. I don't know if they still are. Growing up, a Tootsie Roll is a penny. So you can steal one Tootsie Roll and you'll get a, a misdemeanor. But anything over the one Tootsie Roll or two Tootsie Rolls, because that's two pennies. Then you go to jail. And when in this neighborhood, if they're so concerned, when will there be a brigade of people standing outside the store, standing inside the store in the entrance or the exits, making sure that no one ever steals anything? Sorry, man, we're not letting this happen. Not at our grocery store. Because we need this food to live. 
When will that happen? It won't. So they're going to go out of business. And then all the, the rich corporate fat cats and greedy capitalists are going to be blamed. <laughs> Guys. So just to bring it back to the song, Jason Aldean. That song, Tried in a Small Town, that struck a nerve because it spoke to a forgotten man. Sound of Freedom spoke to the forgotten man. Trump speaks to the forgotten man. This Oliver Anthony guy, this great American Appalachian country style, speaking about how the elite has sold the country down the river. Speaking to the forgotten man. Let me end on a good note. And then we'll go to Brandon Weikert. We'll talk about uh, the Chinese controlling our power grid, which seems to me should be a bigger concern than it seems most people have. So here's a good note. We'll end on a good one. This is a good culture. We got to end on, on this, right? So we have some bad cultural points. Now we'll end on a good cultural point. Dwayne Wade was inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame this weekend. And he's given a speech and he spent two minutes honoring his dad. So let me quote my friend Delano Squires. This is how it should be. Dad instills discipline and structure while pushing his son beyond his limits. Then when the son matures and becomes a man, he looks back with appreciation for his father and speaks about him with honor and respect. And I want to end it the same way. I owe you a debt of gratitude that I'll never be able to repay. When I would cry and say I can't, you made me go harder. You pushed me to limits that I didn't know were inside of me. The hard work I put in was because I didn't want to let you down. Those countless hours in the backyard, where we would compete against each other like strangers, it built me to last. Those days that turned into late nights of me working on my left hand so it was just as good as my right, it made me an unstoppable force. That time you got kicked out of the game as my coach and snuck back in the side door and coached me from the stands just to get kicked out again, it showed me that there was no limitations on how you would show up for me. It's the exact same way I try to show up for my kids. So even though I hated being called Little Dwayne, I admired you as a kid. I admire you now. We had the same exact dream, and we carry the same exact name, Dwayne Tyrone Wade, to know we hustled all the way to the Basketball Hall of Fame is God's will. So, Pops, I know your knees are a little sore, but will you join me on stage as we take our rightful step into basketball heaven? It was cool because during that whole speech, his dad is in the audience standing up. The powerful. Hug it out. This one right here, this one is for my father. I love you and I'm thankful for you. I love you too, man. We in the Hall of Fame, dog. <laughs> That's pretty good. So at the Oliver Anthony concert, Jamie Johnson showed up to sing with him, who has two of the most famous songs, The Dollar. That song will make you cry every single time. And then In Color, which is as good as music gets. 
so two songs about dads and legacy. Exemplified right there very nicely with Dwayne Wade. Now, pushing your son in sports for the sake of sports isn't quite it. But pushing your kids in every other way to make them better people, to make them men and women of virtue, now we're talking. So many people have let their kids run wild, become feral. Not raising kids to act right. Not holding each other to a standard like his dad clearly did. This is a good example. Push your kid to become a man or one of virtue to the point where one day that boy will turn into a man and look back and then thank his father and do it together. That, that is as good as it gets. More of that, please. That's what we need more of in this country. Pollock because there's so many legal things going on right now and I didn't go to law school so I don't know what all this legal stuff means all the time but Joel does he did he went to Harvard so he knows what it all means and can help us make sense of it and I love this interview because at the end of it I was like oh okay I get it now I get it I didn't get it now I get it and I love that feeling here's Joel Pollock the senior editor at large at Breitbart Joel how are you sir good morning good morning how are you I'm very good thanks for uh, getting up with us here so got a lot of questions. I got a lot of uh, legal questions. I'm not a legal mind. You are. So this one maybe is legal question. Uh, what about these fake electors? I keep hearing about that. That Trump. This is like the big the big claim against the January sixth uh, group of indictments is that Trump had these these fake electors that he was going to somehow scam. I don't even know the rest of the story. I don't even know what, but, 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 but that's enough. Fake electors. What is that? What are they talking about? The Trump campaign prepared an alternate slate of electors in the event that the result was thrown out in Michigan, in Georgia, in any number of states. So they would have a remedy in the event a judge or state election authorities said, you know what, these electors that were chosen to go to the Electoral College and cast their votes for Joe Biden, those are invalid. And there's ample precedent for this. The John F. Kennedy campaign did this in Hawaii in 1960, where the Hawaii state legislature chose three Republican electors because it looked at that stage like Richard Nixon had won the state. And Kennedy's team had the Democratic electors meet at the same time and sign a bunch of forms and so forth, stating that they were the electors. And ultimately, Hawaii sent two sets, two lists of electoral votes to Washington. And the Democratic list was chosen, even though it had been unofficial at the time, because a recount in Hawaii determined that the Democratic candidate, Kennedy, won the state and not Nixon, as originally thought. So they needed a remedy like that. And in fact, a judge at the time who was looking at the Kennedy campaign's effort said, yes, this was a legitimate effort to preserve an alternative in the event 
that the result was changed. So the Trump campaign did exactly what the Kennedy campaign did. There's nothing illegal about it. There's no fakeness or fraud about it. There's no attempt to deceive anybody. It's not like the electors were traveling to Washington with Groucho Marx <laughs> mustaches and you know pretending to be someone they weren't. It, it, it's not yeah. an attempt to deceive anybody. That's it's preserving it. a legal remedy. What they didn't want to happen was that a judge decided that, let's say, they won Georgia and Biden didn't win Georgia. But then the judge said, well, you know, you guys won, but the Electoral College cast its votes on December 14th. And, you know, there's just no other list of electors, so I can't actually send mm-hmm. another list to Washington. So even though you won the state, it's just too bad. You don't have another set of electors. I have to send this original set, even mm-hmm. though they don't represent the will of the electorate. So, so that's all that they were doing was preparing a legal remedy. And in fact, in Michigan, where they've been charged with forgery, which is unbelievable, the document that they signed, these electors, as part of their filling out the forms to be alternate electors, stated that their status as electors was only valid if a court threw out the result. Really? In Michigan. So, oh, that's yeah. so, so good, Joel. Thank you so much for that. That is so obvious. <clears throat> The scam that because they are trying to create the perception that they were being deceitful with the Groucho Marx glasses. It sounds very cooey, <laughs> right? Does it sound? It sounds like oh, like here's uh, we're gonna pretend that these are, and, and like sneak them in the box that uh, that uh, Mike Pence is counting and and then he says the wrong words and he says the wrong electors. And then oh, he can't go back because he already said it and 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 oh, he tricked everyone. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. So what's the forgery claim? Forgery is that they, they signed false documents, you know, that, that these electoral college forms weren't real, and they were trying to forge the result. I mean, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it, there's no merit to these charges whatsoever. And when they go to a court, the defense team is going to be able to say, Your Honor, we're only doing what John F. Kennedy did in 1960. And they're right. Yeah, fake sounds so much worse than alternative or alternate. Alternate electors is is what it was. They well, the New York Times, them. the New York Times let let the let the truth slip through because they did a big piece about this last week, and they actually used the term alternate electors in the body of the article. So even though they also described it as you know a fake scam, whatever, whatever, at some point they actually used the phrase alternate electors in the in the body of the article. So. So they know what's going on here. They're just trying to maintain this fiction. Yeah, really good. All right, we're talking Joel Pollack. All right, let's get to some more legal stuff. So uh, judge warns of limits to what Trump can say about election case and agrees to limited protective order. What, what What does this mean? The prosecutor, Jack Smith, the special counsel, tried to stop Trump from talking about any evidence in the case that he brought in D.C. And... He used as a pretext Trump's true social post talking about how he was going to come after the people who were going after him, which was very vague and not specific to any particular people. And the judge was presented with an, other, with an alternative motion by the defense, and they said, no, Your Honor, we're okay with Trump not revealing sensitive information if there's any sort of classified or dangerous information somehow, but you can't gag him in the middle of an election. He's a political candidate for office. He's running for president. You can't prevent him from talking about the case, which is the most high profile of all the indictments. I mean, it's ridiculous. And the judge actually 
seemed at first, according to early reports, to side with the defense because she said, well, I can't stop him from talking about the case entirely. But she then said, I'm going to prevent him from talking about sensitive things in the case. And she included in that category of sensitive things any witness testimony, any recordings, any videos in the case, because she said that would be witness intimidation, which I think is a stretch. So she actually did limit his right to talk about the case. And, you know, that's very hard to enforce with Donald Trump because he likes to talk a lot. But this is how the government is operating. They are limiting his political speech during a presidential election. It's the time when you should have the greatest latitude in freedom of speech. It's what freedom of speech is for. It's for providing for democratic debate so that the citizens of the country can talk about the issues facing them and the candidates they're going to choose and so forth. So based so on what this judge this said, a, so based on what this judge yeah. said, ruled, what types of things specifically could he not say? Hypothetically? So there's a bunch of grand jury testimony, for example, that they're going to introduce into trial, perhaps, or there will be depositions or video recordings that they've made of people saying what they wanted to do or what Trump wanted to do, making allegations. And the judge said, you can't talk about that. Even though it's going to be admitted in evidence and, and it's a public document, you can't talk about it because if you talk about that witness testimony, you could be intimidating the witnesses. So if Mike Pence told the grand jury that Donald Trump was very angry on the morning of January 6th, you can't talk about it because you might be intimidating Mike Pence, even though Mike Pence is a political candidate running against Trump for the presidential nomination, you can't talk about what he said, uh, Wow, which is ridiculous in my view. Or else what? Uh, let's say when, when Trump does, because obviously he will, what, what's what kind or of else he's put into jail because she said the terms of his pretrial release are that he can't talk about witnesses. So <laughs> she basically interpreted witness testimony to be part of talking about witnesses which to me is ridiculous. If what they say in court, what they introduce in court is a public document, it's in the public domain, and I think any defendant should be allowed to talk about it and reveal it to the public. We're talking about imprisoning a former president, the leading opposition candidate for president in the next election. There should be absolute latitude in what the public sees and hears about this case, but the judge doesn't agree. So we're in a new world here where we can censor political candidates on the basis of phony charges against them. And people who want to make this equivalence and say, well, you know, both sides are being investigated, so we've got two candidates who are under investigation. The difference is that the Biden charges are about serious things like bribery. They're about real crimes. The Trump charges are about made-up crimes where the Democrats know they're making it up. Their media outlets know they're making it up. They talk about it as being an innovative legal theory that's never been tested before. How do you charge someone with committing crimes where nobody knows what the law is? You can't do that. You can't just make the law up on the fly and say, well, you know, you, you broke this rule. I mean, imagine doing that in, in any kind of sport or in a business setting. You can't do that. People have to know what the law is. And often what Trump does and did in this situation simply follow what Democrats had done in the past. If you look at Trump's statements or rhetoric, I mean, he's basically just done what Democrats did. They challenged electoral college results in Congress, 
when it came to be certified in 2017 when he won. They challenged it when George Bush won. All Trump and his lawyers did was color within the lines established previously by Democrats, and none of those people were hauled into court. And you're talking about people who later served on the January 6th committee and sat in judgment of Trump for doing the same thing they had done. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. We're seeing the system of the rule of law being overturned here by the people charged with its defense. And it's, it's, it's a new world that we're living in. And unless we pull back from it, we're going to end up in a very dangerous third world kind of place. Yeah, one more Trump question, and then I want to. I got a Biden question for you. Um, so I <clears throat> heard this uh, story that the Trump team hacked into, or there was a breach by the Trump team into the Georgia voting machines. Uh, by the way, I always say this. I've said this a million times. Uh, six days before the election, PBS NewsHour ran a nine-minute story on how easy it is to hack into the Dominion voting machines in Georgia setting the stage for, as you were speaking of, uh, their claims of voter fraud. Um, the story's still up, by the way. Still, up. Anyway, so did Trump hack into the Georgia software? This is a classic example of a bait-and-switch where CNN or the New York Times will make a claim in the headline that is not supported by the body of the article. So the headline at CNN made it look like Trump's team had hacked into the voting system before the 2020 election, or maybe even the 2024 election, it wasn't clear, where the body of the article says that an election official in Coffee County, Georgia, sent a written invitation to Trump's lawyers to come and inspect the voting system in the country, excuse me, in the county, to see for themselves how it worked. That's it. We don't know anything more than that. It's unclear what exactly happened. And frankly, I think the entire public should be able to inspect a voting system in any county, in any state, because it's the only way we're going to have confidence in the way these systems work. There has to be transparency around how votes are cast and counted and so forth. And we don't know what came of this inspection, but CNN treated it as if it were some kind of smoking gun that Trump broke into the voting system, which doesn't make any sense even if you think about it, because if they were able to hack into voting systems, why didn't they win the state of Georgia? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You're right, but, but here's the headline. The headline is, messages show Trump's team behind voting system breach. They're behind it. Right, right. Yeah, right, right. You know, like there's some secret evidence that, that the district attorney in Fulton County has that she's going to use to indict Trump and all these other people because they want to justify this ridiculous indictment ahead of time. We already know it's ridiculous because they had a special grand jury in Fulton County investigate Trump and recommend an indictment. And then the four person of the jury went out and did all these TV interviews talking about how they wanted to get Trump. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So the public has already seen that the whole process is biased against Trump and is a political exercise. So when they present the case to another formal grand jury this week, they're going to have to make it look legitimate. So the media is out there with stories like this to make it seem that Trump did something wrong. By the way, you're going to hear a lot in the coming days about how Trump told Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find me the votes. Find me the votes. You've probably heard that many times. That's not what Trump said. If you look at the transcript of what he said in a phone call with his lawyers on the call, knowing that other people were listening to the call, Trump said, I just want to find the votes. That's very different than find me the votes. I just want to find the votes expresses a desire 
to resolve the state's electoral count in his favor. It's not ordering anybody to make anything up. And as with the Zelensky phone call and the impeachment in 2019, Democrats and Trump's opponents in the media are making up a fake transcript to replace the real transcript, to replace what actually happened. And when this goes before a jury, if it goes before a jury, Trump's lawyers are going to have the opportunity to tear it apart. But it never should be charged. It's ridiculous. It's fraudulent evidence. Jack Smith did the same thing in his indictment over January 6th. He included Trump's speech at the Stop the Steal rally without including the part about peacefully and patriotically. They're playing the same game they've played since the beginning. They're faking the evidence, and they're putting the country through hell because they can't handle the truth. Quote, so look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. And obviously the context, and by the way, you can listen to the whole phone call. It's an hour-long phone call. You listen to it. It's all on the YouTube. Listen to the whole thing. The whole context is Trump lays out, here's a million fraudulent votes that we think. People with, who register with P.O. boxes, people who didn't sign it, uh, illegal immigrants, whatever. They lay, he laid out a bunch. He's like, oh, we got it. I just want to find 11,000. We don't need to investigate all million. Just, right, just investigate. We just need to investigate 11,780 so that we can get the rightful he, he, result. He's not saying... He's not even saying that. He's saying, I, I just want to find it. He's, he's saying, look, you can understand where I'm coming from here. I think all these votes were invalid. And finding the number of votes that would put me over the top is so small, you can understand my frustration. Because it comes at the end of a whole conversation where he's laying out his theories as to why this thing was stolen. Raffensperger says it wasn't and so forth. I mean, Trump could be wrong, but he's expressing a subjective desire to find the proof that he believes is out there, that he actually won the state. And the crucial part of Jack Smith's indictment in federal court in D.C. is the claim that Trump knew he didn't win. Yes. And Trump is making it very clear in this conversation that he believes he did win, and he doesn't care what Raffensperger and these other people are telling him. Trump believes he won the election. He believes those votes are out there. He just wants to show that they're out there because he believes legitimately that they're there. Mm. So this this whole thing should not have happened. It certainly should have been charged earlier if, if he did something wrong, not in the run-up to the next election. And the reason they're doing it, of course, is because he's the leading candidate for the Republican nomination, not because there was some crime committed that they have to address. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me pivot to uh, <clears throat> Hunter here. So I heard the argument the other day. Well, Jake Tapper made it more prominently that what Hunter did probably sleazy but also what everyone in D.C. does all the time, like Trent Lott's wife was a lobbyist when he was Speaker of the Senate or whatever, head of the Senate. Uh, and he's just, like, like, they rattle through all these examples of people's wives and brothers and sons and daughters and everyone. Who's, like That's the point of it. Hire me because I have a direct contact with this person of authority and this person of who, may, who has power. And you give me money and I'll give that's just what it is. And Jake Tapper's claim is sleazy, sure, and if you want to change the system, okay. But nothing was illegal. Nothing other than maybe some uh, technical things, if you want to call it, like not declaring the money and like tax fraud, tax evasion, and not declaring yourself a foreign uh, lobbyist or whatever. Okay, fine, fill out the paperwork, you're done. But there's no real crime that was committed by either Joe or Hunter. What do you say to that? 
Well, on the one hand, he's right. There's a lot of what goes on in D.C. that looks exactly like what Hunter Biden did. They should know at CNN because one of their senior executives is married to the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. So CNN plays that game as well. The difference is that Joe Biden is the president of the United States. At the time, a lot of this activity was going on. He was the vice president of the United States. And what he did looks like bribery in that he was providing access to people who normally would not have had the right to have access. These are foreign business investors or foreigners who have some interest in American policy. And we do have some evidence, at least, that policies were changed to match what Hunter Biden's business partners wanted to happen. Joe Biden went out there in 2018 and bragged about it, how he had this prosecutor fired who had jurisdiction over the investigations into Burisma. So there was some official action taken with loan guarantees, a billion dollars in loan guarantees threatened as the price. We've all seen and heard that video of Joe Biden doing that. And the explanation as to why he did that is really shady. They claim that this prosecutor was corrupt and that the rest of the international community wanted him out. We haven't really seen any proof of that, but we do know that the Burisma executives wanted this prosecutor gone and that part of the reason they hired Hunter Biden was to get rid of prosecutions and investigations into Burisma so they could go public in the United States. So it looks like bribery because there was a quid pro quo. We may find that there were more things exchanged because that's why you have an impeachment inquiry. So you can go into the records so that you can subpoena documents and witnesses and find out if there were other actions taken. But on the surface, we know that there were things that were done. We also know that Joe Biden lied to us about all of this. And he lied when he was running for president. And he lied to the State Department when he was vice president. And they asked him about these conflicts of interest. He lied about not talking to his family about their businesses. He lied about not meeting Hunter Biden's business partners. And now they're lying about being part of the business. Joe Biden was the business. When you show up at a meeting of your son's business partners and they're paying your son millions of dollars to gain access to you, you are completing the business transaction. So it's illegal and it may be impeachable. And the other thing is this is what Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was prosecuted for. He was prosecuted for not registering as a foreign agent under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And it may be commonplace in D.C., but Democrats stepped up the enforcement of this statute when they went after Donald Trump. And if you're going to do that against Trump, you're going to do it against Biden. Oh, interesting. You have okay, to accept so that. I just want to make sure I get this right and, before I proceed with yeah. you know, suggestions that we impeach. So if Hunter said, hey, give me $10,000 a month and I'll give you uh, a call or a connection with Joe Biden. And then uh, the Burisma guys make their case as to why we should stop this prosecutor. And, uh, and, J- and, and Hunter makes the case to dad, who happens to be the vice president. Hey, we got to get rid of this prosecutor. And Joe's like, you know what? Yeah, you guys are right. That's a, that's a pretty good idea. I, sh- I, sh- I should do that. And then he goes and he does it. That's lobbying. Right. But if it's, That's hey, bribery. dad, do this. Worse than and lobbying. No, no, it's worse than lobbying. It's bribery. No, where's the bri- where's it turn into just... bribery? Well, I guess my question is, what's the difference between lobbying and bribery? Lobbyists participate in regular political activity that theoretically any citizen could do. 
you could go to the White House, you could call the White House switchboard, say, I want a meeting with the vice president to talk about Ukraine, which he's in charge of, and, you know, get on the schedule and get a 10-minute slot to talk to Vice President Joe Biden and make your case and convince him. That's lobbying. And lobbyists do that for a living. You pay them to work on getting those appointments, but they do that for a living. They do earn money from doing it. They declare that money as income to the IRS. They register as lobbyists and so forth. And it's not really fair because ordinary citizens don't have that kind of access. There's a room, by the way, off the House of Representatives in the Capitol where lobbyists can interact with your elected representatives. Literally, they can hang out in a little lounge, and the representatives will go there between votes, and they'll talk to the representatives of this company and that company. And it's part it's part of the Capitol, the way it works. They don't talk about it a lot, but it is the way it works, and, and it's legal. These are registered lobbyists. They have identification, that sort of thing. So everybody knows what's going on, at least. But when you're paying somebody like the president's son off the books and the income is undeclared and the president's son is not a registered lobbyist and he's representing foreign companies or even domestic companies, and you're getting these private meetings with the vice president and he's in charge of a certain area of policy and he starts changing policies because you paid his son millions of dollars and your son pays your grandkids and your other relatives and your daughters-in-law and you, then you're taking money to make decisions, make policy changes. Lobbyists don't pay your family directly. They they might hold campaign fundraisers where other people can donate to your political campaigns, but they're not coming with checks for your relatives. So there's, there's a difference. I mean, lobbying is a bit sleazy, but it's legitimate political activity. This is bribery, and it's one of the specific crimes mentioned by the framers of the Constitution as impeachable. Now, the question in this case is, did what Hunter Biden was doing, did did that reach the level of a high crime and misdemeanor? Did it reach the level of bribery, or was it just an unregistered form of lobbying? I think it reached bribery, but the fact that we don't know and we can't answer that question yet on the basis of the evidence means we need an impeachment inquiry to find out. It could be that you have an inquiry And you look at this and you say, well, Joe Biden stiffed these people. They paid his son a bunch of money to get all these meetings, and he really didn't do anything for them. Maybe he switched the Ukraine policy on the prosecutor, but that was kind of a minor thing. It wasn't a major thing. And we've looked into all this, and all he really did was take these people's money and pretend to be doing what they wanted. So, you know, no harm, no foul. This is just a minor FARA violation. It's breaking the law. But it's not really a high crime and misdemeanor. So you know, maybe we could decide that. And I'm actually sympathetic to that view because I opposed the Trump impeachment. I opposed, at the time, the Clinton impeachment. I said that even if Clinton – this is you know, when I was a student, and of course I was on the other side of the aisle then. I was a left-wing activist when I was in college. But I believed then, and I still think it was the right position today, that minor crimes shouldn't invalidate democratic elections, that you don't impeach and remove a president – for something small that didn't really affect national policy. So I felt at the time that even if he had lied under oath about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, that it wasn't serious enough, serious enough to warrant removing him from office. Maybe there should be other consequences after he's done being president, but not removing him while he's president. I'm actually partial to that view. I'd like to see Hunter Biden prosecuted for violating it because they went after Paul Manafort, but maybe you don't throw out Joe Biden. But this could be much bigger, and I think it's already reached the stage where it might be. 
we have Biden on record boasting about removing this Ukrainian prosecutor. We were told by Democrats themselves how important this relationship with Ukraine was and is and how important fighting corruption was in that country to make sure that when money was sent there for military aid, it was used to defend the country and not to line the pockets of Ukrainian officials. So this is a matter of vital national security interest to the United States. We've seen that now with the invasion of Ukraine. And if Joe Biden is undermining the national security of the United States so we can feather the nest of his progeny, well, that's bribery. And that is an impeachable and removable offense. You've been uh, generous with your time, Joel. So quickly, uh, please, the uh, appointment of David Weiss as a special counsel uh, to investigate Hunter Biden announced on Friday afternoon, which is when they dump things that they don't want to give a lot of attention to. Uh, what, what do you make of this? Well, he's the wrong guy. The special counsel is supposed to be somebody with independence and credibility to investigate the government. The first problem that Merrick Garland has done, or the first mistake he made was appointing a special counsel to look into the opposition, into Trump, which is not the way the special counsel procedure is supposed to be used. But secondly, with David Weiss, he's appointing the same person who slow walked the investigation, who allowed the statute of limitations to expire, and who crafted this sweetheart plea deal that would have let Hunter Biden avoid future prosecution. You don't appoint the same person who's responsible for destroying the credibility of the investigation to lead the investigation. It's also a problem because we were told until now that David Weiss had the authority to go charge Hunter Biden and all these other jurisdictions. And now Garland has made him special counsel stating as his reason for doing so that we're giving him the authority to go charge Hunter Biden and all these other places. Hang on, their story has changed. So it looks like a cover-up rather than an actual effort to investigate Hunter Biden and really Joe Biden should be the target of all this because they're just using this investigation to evade congressional testimony, to evade congressional subpoenas. They're going to be able to say now, well, we're not going to come and testify about our investigation because now it's under a special counsel investigation. And you have to wait for our report, which could come out after the election, you know, years from now. So it looks like a cover up rather than a real investigation. If they had chosen an attorney from outside of government, which they did, with the other investigation of Joe Biden, there is another special counsel investigating Joe Biden, uh, this fellow named uh, Robert Hur, who's going after Biden on the documents case. They pulled him out of private practice to come back to the government to do the special counsel investigation. That's how you are supposed to appoint a special counsel. There are some special counsels that have been appointed in the past who are serving in the government, even though you're not really supposed to do that. But they've been so distant from the issues at hand that people didn't really question their independence. Like when John Durham was appointed special counsel by William Barr, he was just this guy in Connecticut. He wasn't involved in anything. He was seen as a straight shooter. So Republicans were okay with it. Democrats seemed okay with it. Nobody questioned his independence. But he's got the guy who screwed up the investigation, getting more power to screw up the same investigation. And, and it, it doesn't no make other... sense. So Democrats... yeah, sorry, as if there's no other person that they could have possibly appointed in the whole country to lead it other than this, this guy. Right. <laughs> the one right. guy left. And, and Democrats are out there saying, well, you know, Chuck Grassley, Republican senator from Iowa, he said they should give David Weiss special counsel powers. I think that was before David Weiss was revealed to have done this sweetheart plea deal. You know, Republicans wanted David Weiss to have special counsel powers before they realized what David Weiss was up to. The plea bargain that would have shielded Hunter Biden from further prosecution blew the whole thing wide open. And now nobody trusts David Weiss. 
Joel Pollock, senior editor at large, Breitbart News. Joel, thanks for walking us through all the legal stuff here. I'm grateful. Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you, sir. I feel like I have a uh, much firmer grasp on uh, on all of this. I'm American made. I got American parts. So we've talked a bit, not enough, about the Afghanistan withdrawal. And it was in the news the other day because a lot of the Gold Star families were speaking out against it. Now coming up on the two-year anniversary. It just happens that uh, James Hassan wrote a book called Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought, who fought to the end. He wrote that book and it comes out, I think, like tomorrow or in a couple of days. But he'll be here with us on tomorrow's show. Spread the word. I'm in love with her and I want